0: You're listening to The Film Podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the Film Podcast, where we're looking at world building with a debut feature film by a filmmaker with a single-minded vision to her storytelling. To make your first feature requires a lot of things to line up and be executed. And then to add in world building concept into your film, along with the myriad of 101 other things, well, let's just say that it can be a lot to bite off for your first feature. Karen Chinore, welcome to the Film Podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: How's everything been in New York over the past two or three months? Because things seem to be getting a little bit better out there.
1: New York is pretty fun, I have to say. I have a very vibrant neighborhood, so I never feel too bleak here after the initial pandemic when things were quite shut down. It's a very lively intersection of the world. And I think every kind of person, race, class, I just mm-hmm. everyone is sort of on my street. So I walk outside every day and it's quite exciting.
0: Well, firstly, congratulations on getting your first feature made. That in itself is a huge relief.
1: I've made a lot of films and they haven't been 90 minutes. Process is the same. The anxieties are the same. So it didn't feel so outrageous to me to make a world-building film as my debut feature because I have been making, you know, world-building films for a long time. It's just on this scale, I've never done it before, so that was quite a big lift for sure. But it didn't feel, it didn't feel like I was in a strange new territory.
0: And before we look at your debut feature film, let's go back a little bit. How did it all start out for you as a filmmaker? How early on did you realize that filmmaking is something you wanted to do?
1: Uh, I realized I wanted to work probably in the arts in some way, and I loved storytelling and motion and music and sound and language, I wasn't sure how I'd pull it all together. I was in my teens when I knew something like that was in store for me, but it was in college That I took my first film class, and my incredible film teacher, Leslie Thornton, had us do everything ourselves. So we made our films, we shot our films, we lit our films, we wrote our films. She was a great experimentalist and a great craftswoman. So our first lesson was how to load a Bullock's camera, and I opened it up and I heard it purr, and I loved the machine and I, I loved the feel of the machine in my hand. You
0: know, often it can come down to one person that really does mm-hmm. spark things for us. It sounds like mm-hmm. Leslie may have been that person that initially got you going.
1: Yes. I think there were two people for me, Leslie and also another art teacher named Daryl Wilson who teaches film at NYU. I met him when I was about 14 and he showed me a film by Maya Darren. I'd never seen a film like that. I didn't realize that filmmaking – could be this other thing, such a personal thing, something done with one own hands and so poetic. So I, I think both of those filmmakers for me really introduced film to me in a way that really set me going on the idea that it can be whatever you want. There don't have to be specific rules. And that was incredibly uh, inspiring and helpful.
0: And you went to film school?
1: No, I didn't. I went to liberal arts college and there was a film class there. And my major was actually a kind of strange undergraduate major. It was called art semiotics. Semiotics is the study of signs. I was able to take all sorts of classes that dealt with image making and spectacle and culture and language. The filmmaking classes were considered a a side part of that that study, and um, but to me they were really quite central, and they were the way that everything came together.
0: Well, let's have a look at your film May Day. It mm-hmm. tells the story of a girl who is transported to a dreamlike and dangerous land where she joins an army of girls engaged in a never-ending war along a rugged coast. Though she finds strength in this exciting new world, she comes to realize that she's not the killer that they want her to be. Mayday is your debut. It's an all-girl driven piece. Mm -hmm. When you start thinking about what it was that you wanted to say, how did you land and arrive at Mayday?
1: I spent my life being in a mild state of despair and sometimes disgusted at what kind of characters women are meant to portray. And in films, television, even books, songs, And I think I had a deep, deep desire to create a story with the kind of heroines that I wanted to see. The word Mayday means help. (laughs) And I saw these characters as forces of nature who were taking on this incredible adventure and were helping each other to find their own voices and their own way through a world that can be, I think, for young women, sadly quite violent at times. And I wondered what does it take for us to wrestle with that kind of violence when we're growing up and, and what kind of forms does that take in our minds?
0: And what about casting this film? Being your first film, you want to make sure that you get your casting absolutely as right mm-hmm. as it can possibly be. So how difficult was that for you, casting your first feature and getting all these these pieces, the right pieces in play?
1: The casting process was The most extraordinary thing that's ever happened to me, because with my incredible casting agent, you know, we sent the script out, and hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds, and hundreds of young women came to us. You know, uh, either via Skype or, you know, they would come in, they would fly in, they would fly to LA. It's it was an onslaught. It was, and I would get messages from them about how much the script meant to them. The enthusiasm was overwhelming and it gave me a great feeling that we were on the right track (laughs) with the film and that it was exciting to people. I had some idea about who I wanted to be in the film, but it was not completely formulated. It really came down to these actors who I ultimately picked. they felt like it was their story. They felt so inside the story the first time they read it, the second time they read it. And not only did they have the characteristics and embody the spirit of the way I saw them in the script, but really came to me and and said this was theirs. This was they had such ownership over these roles in a way that was really moving to me and we just through all the excitement and the the numbers, the sheer numbers, we just found each other and and settled nicely into our ensemble.
0: Well, you're halfway there if you've got the actors that feel like they've found something because that's Mm. 50% of it. It seems to me that you wanted to transport the audience and take them down this wild ride into the unknown world of your lead character. Mm -hmm. How important was that whole journey for you as the filmmaker to take the audience down the rabbit hole? Because that's where Essentially, people are going. They're off down a rabbit hole.
1: Yeah. Well, I love the uh, the rabbit hole comes from Alice in Wonderland, which is such a wonderful female heroine who goes on this incredible adventure. It's quite mysterious. But I, I think it's important for me. There's this difference between in history of art that, that people have referenced over and over again between beautiful and sublime. And beautiful things are comforting, and we know them well, and they're soothing, And this category of sublime is interesting to me because it's actually different and scary and kind of disruptive and you feel off balance. So without throwing anyone off the ride, I wanted people to feel this excitement of being off balance and something that would feel different enough that they would feel like they didn't know what was going on completely just enough so that you come to that incredible feeling for me, which is when I see something where I feel like I didn't know anything at all, and I feel this sense of awe, which is very different from looking at something and it confirming what you already think or what you already know. It's, it's a re- I really wanted it to feel more like a destabilizing ride that if it succeeds, it really brings you to a place of this transcendent kind of fun and and hope. I don't think you can get there in a very traditional way.
0: And mystery seems to Mm -hmm. play into your film, the way that you've executed it. And often I get really frustrated at how stories can be dumbed down to the very Mm -hmm. last detail. But Karen, Mm -hmm. you're not a person that is going to dumb something down, it seems to me.
1: No, I refuse to dumb it down. I have too much respect for the people who've taken the time to watch the movie. When I watch a movie and then then it starts to tell you what's happening, I think the movie dies and I don't understand why people do that. I mean, I'm not there to confuse anyone. I'm not there. I'm not trying to confound anyone. I think what people don't realize about film is that it's doing so much. You don't have to have a character tell you everything. Like people are getting it in their bones when they're watching it. It's all coming through to them in all these different ways, all these different kinds of signals. You don't need to always spell everything out. It can really be lead in and you can lose the sense of mystery, which can be a very beautiful experience.
0: You know, it's interesting with filmmakers and what they bring from their backstory. I understand that you're a dancer and a choreographer, Mm -hmm. and the film has a scene which comes back to this discipline of yours. I'm curious as a filmmaker, how much of the precision, the art of doing something over and over again to create a dance piece, and of course the discipline of dance itself, how much of the dance you would have brought into your whole film directing with that whole precision?
1: Yeah, I, I think that the discipline of being a classical dancer is what is essential to being a good filmmaker. It's the same thing. It's it is like you said the the repetition, the discipline. You don't sleep. You don't. You do it over and over again. It's painstaking. It's painful. It can be backbreaking, and it should look. Beautiful and effortless. And the only way you can get that is through this intensity of just rigor, you know. And to me, the work that is most exciting is the films that are rigorous in some way. Even if they're, they don't seem that way, you can feel it. You can feel when someone has rigor and you can see it with the people you work with, the people that really understand that sense of discipline. And, and then that's how you get to the lightness the lightness of a film and so that dynamic I think I bring with me to every film I make.
0: What about Black Swan? I'm just wondering what you thought of Black Swan when that first came out.
1: I liked it. <laughs> I liked it. Yeah. I you know, I I like any movie about a a, a ballet scenario. I'll check it out
0: and i was thinking about the timeline of your film with the me too movement and going back to the time you might have been pitching your film to producers maybe that was around the same time of the me too and if it was did that help in any way with the timing of sort of financing up this film
1: i think it did i've had this film kicking around for years You know, I think producers are looking for something of the zeitgeist. I mean, my producers were excited that it was speaking to something that was happening in the world for women. And it was funny, though, because, I mean, my film is kind of based on a Greek myth of the sirens. So it's a story that's thousands of years old. It's not a new tale. I think it helped. I think it helped them feel like it was a good gamble you know, because it was in people's imagination. It didn't feel like it was coming from way left off center. And, and that's, that's a reassuring feeling for someone who's putting up their time and treasure for a project.
0: And you produced this film. Now, you've probably produced some of your other short films. Yes. How much of a step, though, now moving into a feature was it for you?
1: Producing that I did was the producing that I know how to do. We had Lucas Joaquin. I had Sam Levy. We had Jonas. Like we had people with different expertise, and we kind of came together as a band. You know, we all played a different instrument, and I did the things that I know how to do. And I was stretched. I had to learn quickly a lot of things, and I I called a lot of more seasoned producers all the time <laughs> to ask them what is going on in this minefield. And especially since all of our post was in pandemic so it was quite frantic and strange and strange for everyone not just for us so yeah i mean it was great it was it was like the most fun minefield you'll ever find yourself in so
0: did you have a long post because this was shot before the pandemic arrived
1: normal you know what was pretty heroic about our producers is that they they made us get remote quickly we 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 switched from being in a room together editing to being one hundred percent remote in about forty eight hours and it was just before New York shut down. So we just made it. Our post was long and that we did a big ambitious movie with, you know, an original score and two composers and you know, we have visual effects and, and there's a lot going on in our film. We didn't lose time to the pandemic. I think we lost two weeks total.
0: Gee, you were lucky because you shot this in Croatia. If this had had a strike, you know, when you, you, yeah, if you were in the middle of this in Croatia, everything shuts down.
1: No, (sighs) You'd never, I mean, I know people have gotten their films back on their feet after they got shut down in the pandemic and it is no easy feat, (laughs) no easy feat. We were quite lucky that we got it uh, all shot before.
0: And talking of Croatia, it mm-hmm. seems like it's a real character in your film. Mm. The locations look dynamic. It seems like the locations really added an energy to the
1: piece. Oh, yes. Croatia is the best land I've been in. Uh, I had visited it a long time ago for a project Sam had been doing, and they told us this is the area where the sirens used to call out to the sailors. So that was in my mind many years ago, and it's just the most fascinating landscape. And this was a very small budget for such an ambitious film. And we couldn't go and build another world uh, where the girls go when they're going through the rabbit hole, so to speak. Um, We needed a place that was special and had a lot of differences and felt otherworldly, and Croatia has that. Its forests are Hummeled by winds. And so the trees have fallen over and they're ghostly white. And the waters are spectacular and the cliffs are so high and frightening. And the beauty and a little bit of that nightmarishness, I say that in the most loving way, <laughs> towards the Croatian landscape was perfect for us. It, it was the world. It was the world. And it, you know, our crew was Croatian for the most part. And they were such great guides to this world and they explained to us the their hundred different kinds of winds and they all had different names and they all created different environments and one of them even destroyed our set, the submarines. So but we had finished shooting it out. So I, I think the land was quite kind to us in every way.
0: And as a writer, because you did write the piece, how did you go about actually writing and constructing the story? Tell us a little bit about your writing process because we've got Mm -hmm. writers that listen, most directors Mm -hmm. tend to write. So what's your process with the whole writing?
1: I had to invent it because I had never written a feature length film. So uh, I tried a million different things, longhand, note cards, outlines. What eventually worked for me was sort of a series of note cards with sort of a a shape and then really just hitting the computer day in, day out. You know, I I found my flow that way. And I I realized that I actually sped up at the point at which it's a very mysterious process. It the story tells you what it needs and you're sort of a slave to it. You kind of can't deviate from it. And it's frustrating. And the young women in this film that I think about when i when I was writing it were real real people in my lives who had violence in their younger years and did not survive it and I remember one night it was so late and I was sweating, I did feel feverish, I was writing and writing and writing them, and I realized I was what I was really trying to do is bring them back if I do this well, like if I write this hard enough if I, <laughs> if I get this right, like I could bring them back, and of course you can 't but I could give them a life that in a different way that was beautiful and honored them and gave them a force that I think they always had. And it was extinguished too early. And I, and I wanted to prolong it for them. And so it gave me a lot of fuel to keep going.
0: And it seems that the music has heightened the world that you have created. Mm. Somewhat of a contrast between reality and this new world. Clearly, that is an intentional thing that you have done to bring everything together. So how important for you is music as a filmmaker for telling your story?
1: I would say, to me, sound is everything with film. It is just as important as image, if not more. It, it creates the entire feeling. And it doesn't have to be music. It can be the sound of the wind or or the grit beneath someone's hands. It could be anything, but th- that entire soundscape creates the film in this incredible way. And this is the first time I did original scoring and I was so blessed to have Colin Stetson, who's a magician and an inventor as well as Caroline Shaw who's also an inventor. We're all we're all inventors in this adventure and they use their instruments her her voice and him his saxophone and they use them in ways that don't make sense to other people. You know, he he uses it almost as a percussive instrument. She's doing these incredible things with her voice like I've never heard before. And I'm sort of like that with the camera. Like I love to tell Sam to turn it on its side and, you know, make it go backwards. And we just all love playing with our machines so much and, and had a blast doing that.
0: And color also can Mm -hmm. be very emotional. And color within world building is such an additional Mm. string to use, like music. So, talk a little bit about color and how that helps you create story.
1: Color is so important. I think it can create not only emotions, but cohesion. It can help you glide through rather than stop and start. It can elevate, it can it can bring down the pulse and then quicken the pulse. It, it has so much power, color, and it was a joy doing the DI with Sam. And the, the color story was something we talked about from the very, 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 very beginning. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most fascinating parts of film. And I remember the first film that made me excited was The Wizard of Oz. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's this incredible color movie. And she goes from black and white and opens that door and there's this magnificent color all around her. And that's always stuck with me as just absolute magic to have that kind of color revealed. So that's one of the best part of getting to make a movie for sure.
0: Hey, we talk about you being a dancer. You also mm-hmm. work with water in this film. One of the things that I like about water is the whole ballet wonder of floating in a space-like environment without gravity. You use mm. this to great effect. How important was that? It looked like that was a lot of fun for you to realize on screen. Yeah. Yes,
1: yes, yes. I, we love shooting in water. I, I love shooting in lot. I love losing gravity altogether in a film. If I could lose gravity altogether, I'd be thrilled. And of course, water is beautiful for that. And we had Grace Van Patten and casting her. A big part of it was her relationship to water, which is much like mine, that we don't like to be far from it. We don't like to be landlocked. It's very important to us. And she was telling me all about how she liked to surf and is very at home in the water and almost feels free there and that's how I feel. So I knew she could handle the athleticism and the beauty. I mean, these girls act in the water quite a bit. They, they're all Esther Williams beyond and did such a beautiful job. It was incredibly fun. And the water never did what we wanted it to do. And we really had to stretch ourselves to tell the story with water that just does what it wants and work within it. It was, it was incredibly fun.
0: I should mention too you got into Sundance 2021 too didn't you I did. in the dramatic. Yeah, I mean that is yeah. such a big deal. First film. It was film.
1: incredible. No, yeah, we we're in the dramatic competition. It was a shock to get the call. You know, we were so isolated at that time. I, I didn't know why they were calling me or what they wanted. I was so confused. And um yeah, they loved the film and so we were lucky enough to get to
0: show. And Karen, let's bring in your cinematographer, Sam Levy, who has shot a bunch of other films, including Lady Bird. G'day, Sam. Welcome to the film podcast. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, it's a very big vision, this film from Karen. And this is slightly unusual because your director is also your life partner who you've worked with before on other shorts and music videos, tell me a little bit, did that make the realizing of this whole world through lensing it more easier
2: or more challenging for you? Probably easier. We have a better shorthand than I have with most directors that I've worked with only because we've lived together for a long time. We've worked together for many years. So often uh, when I go shoot films for other people, I almost always have to go out of town and travel and be gone for months. And just to be able to immerse ourselves in the process for many, many months on end and to be together. And you know, we shot the film on location in Croatia. It was such a joy just to be living our lives together and working and making this thing. The joyfulness of that found its way into the work and, and on screen. So I would say it's overwhelmingly positive. And you come in.
0: So early as well, because you're having a look at the script first draft, and how how did that work from that cinematography side, but also being the partner and being supportive of the writing process.
2: Yeah, it, that's another reason it was it was great to do this together with Karen. Um, I, I first saw Mayday in outline form even before the first draft, and I read every single draft that Karen made. Um, I couldn't even tell you how many she did, but it was many, many drafts. I read each one, was able to give notes. You know, In addition to photographing the film for Karen, we produced this project together, which primarily just means we got it started and kind of gave it legs and, until we found what I would call real producers. Lucas Joaquin and Jonah Deesand are real producers. You know, one of the things that
0: I've talked about before on the podcast is... A cinematographer comes onto a project when everything is greenlit. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they haven't been through all the ups and downs and all of the struggles that come with trying to piece the finance together. But this, I guess, is something that has offered you that pulling the curtain back moment, having a look at just how difficult getting a film up. Is this given you a whole new appreciation for financing up a film? Oh, without question.
2: You're right. I almost always join the process when it's funded, when there's a start date, when it has shape, and it's already been sometimes produced to the degree that there's even a post schedule and a release schedule. And it it gave me a great appreciation for the backbreaking work that is producing and just, just not only producing the work, but creating a feature-length screenplay that's functional, that people can plug into and respond to and getting it in front of people who are in a position to fund the project or act in the project or in a position to present the script to actors or to people who might get involved, you know, representatives for, you know, production designers or composers. Been a part of some films, like some of Noah Baumbach's films in particular, he brought me in at an early stage before it really had full shape, but mostly conversations and, and not to the degree that I was involved with Mayday. We produced it in the way that we could understand.
0: You know, in many ways, you're a two-handed team, aren't you? Like going out, talking to producers, attracting people to come into the project. It's a two-hander. Between the two of you, you can do the shuffle. You can talk about how you're going to shoot it. She can talk about story. That's not the norm in terms of how a director
2: will go out and try and gear something up. With your background and as a filmmaker and talking to other filmmakers, you, you probably would know more than I... I guess most writers and directors that I've worked with sometimes they have a producer they work with or a partner who helps them facilitate in that way. But I guess, yeah, it's true. Most most directors aren't partnered up with a cinematographer in particular in that way to present the picture of how an idea exists and how how it might be achievable. You know, for for Karen and I, the break the, the, the creative work breakdown in prep, she's the writer and director. And I'm her cinematographer, as we've been discussing. And I, I had a little more experience shooting feature films as a cinematographer. So I could speak to some of the practical matters and things like, you know, how many days I thought we needed and what it would take to create the scope that you see in the script, you know, how we could get there in an achievable sort of material sense. And I, I could speak to that. And, and sometimes it's just having the confidence to say, this will work. This is how many days I think we need. You just have to, to a degree, take my word for it based off of projects like Ladybird or Francis Ha or Kelly Reichert's Wendy and Lucy. This is what we did on those three projects that perhaps you've heard of. And I see where there's parallels in Mayday there. and And sometimes just being able to speak to other projects that I've been involved with that that maybe people are familiar with gives them the confidence to relax a little bit and to to trust Karen and I with with money, but not just with money. You know, it's it's with time and with people's uh, people's reputation. And is this worth is this worth the effort? It's it's not always just about money. It's about people devoting their their time and their energy and their good name to a project. And we're always very confident that this is worthwhile, and you can trust us.
0: And having a look at Lady Bird, which you shot, and comparing it to this film, how many days was Lady Bird to shoot, and how many days was May Day?
2: Let's see. May Day, we had 39 days, and Lady Bird, we had a little bit less. We had something like, I think it was 30 days. That we had for ladybird so we had a little bit more time to make mayday a lot of it was just things like the s- stunts and underwater work and just some of the physical attributes of, of mayday required a little more time
0: well I, I have to say i was not expecting you to say 39 that's a decent amount of days i was expecting you to say something like 25 and we talked to karen about the water dancing scene do you like filming in water? Because the, the angles and the framing under the water, you've got to sort of map all of that
2: out to keep it interesting. And fortunately, your actor, I understand, was a good swimmer. Yeah, Grayson Patton grew up surfing and was great in the water, which is a great asset. I love shooting underwater. There's uh, some of the work I was able to do myself, the pieces where you physically see, the actors in the ocean where they're just sort of underwater, but close to the surface. We were able to do with, you know, some of the more intricate, deeper underwater sequences required a a scuba certified operator. Uh, We had an underwater camera person. I loved being able to participate, but it was better to just be watching, you know, on a monitor and coordinating the choreography with sometimes as many as 20 people underwater. The thing that I love about Mayday is that it really defies gravity in so many ways. You know, there's women flying through the air and riding motorcycles and jumping off cliffs and fighting and zipping through the forest and deep underwater. And they just go to so many different places cinematically. And that's what I really love about this movie. I, I think this movie is The most exciting thing that I've gotten to work on cinematically and photographically because of that, because they just go to all different ends, seemingly, of this cinematic universe that is Mayday.
0: The cinematic universe that you have created through lensing it certainly is something that I think is quite bold and visionary. Before we go, Sam, I've got to ask you about your experience of being the DP with Jerry Seinfeld. Take us a little bit into that world because I know a lot of our filmmakers may be curious as to doing something with Jerry Seinfeld like a special a few years ago. How was that whole process
2: I was great. Um, I, Judd Apatow called me to work on that special. It's called Jerry Before Seinfeld. I'd done um, a TV series with Judd called Crashing, and we had a great time working together. He produced that special. It was Jerry doing a special at a comedy club in Midtown Manhattan in New York City, which is where I live. It was a place he'd started at. And he was kind of revisiting a lot of the material he had done when he started at this club, which is interesting. This is a very small club. um, And I talked to him specifically about the lighting. He was really specific about the way that he wanted the lighting to feel, he wanted to be blinded by the light. He really didn't want to have any sense of the audience sitting out there. And at the same time, he didn't want the light to be hot. A lot of, I've heard a lot of comedians say this that when a room is freezing cold, it's always better for laughs. And the, the moment it gets hot, it's a laughter killer. You know it's a process to figure out how you do that. you know th- there was a really specific light that we picked that could do that. And then from there, it was just, you know, it was really exhilarating. You know, wh- one thing I saw up close with Jerry Seinfeld is that right before the first show that we filmed, you could see he was he was nervous, like any like anyone would be nervous before they go on to give a performance. And then he just eased into it and, and give a great show. I was really moving to, to get to be a part of that.
0: You know, I've heard
2: him talk
0: about comedians in cars. It strikes me that Jerry Seinfeld is a little bit of a filmmaker. He thinks along a filmmaker's path, he's not somebody that is just out to lunch and vacant when it comes to thoughtfulness in terms of how to shoot something definitely
2: he's a real storyteller that i think his preferred mode of storytelling outside of his stand up is is definitely storytelling on on tv i think his sensibility is incredibly well expressed he has a, a Cinema sense, but at the same time, it, he, he's kind of outspoken about not really wanting to do a feature film. It's just not something he's really interested in. His area of interest is stand up and being on stage and performing to a crowd and television. And I think uh, he seems really in his element on that you know show, Comedians in Cars. That, that was what was interesting about doing that special was just being in this old venue that he started at, and hearing him talk about what this material is, and then just the conversations that I had with him personally were strictly about the way that, you know, lighting and photography should support. It's interesting. You know, it's interesting for me, you know, my passion is feature films and and making movies. It's not a space I want to be in all the time. But for those few weeks, it was really fun to get to have those conversations with him.
0: Well, Sam, thank you for coming on to the show, talking about Mayday and Jerry Seinfeld as well. And uh, I look forward to seeing what comes next. I think you've got a project. I saw what is it? John Hamm from uh, Mad Men coming up. Is that
2: right? Yes, it's called Confess, Fletch, a reboot of the Fletch film from the '80s with Chevy Chase, starring John Hamm, and directed by the great Greg Mottola. Well, good luck with that, and thank you so much
0: for coming on to the film podcast. Thanks a lot, Craig. What are a couple of things do you think that you've mostly taken away from this project, sort of like you reflect on and think, wow, you know, I've learned a couple of really big things that I'm going to take into my next film? (sighs)
1: So many things. Well, that... I love making big movies. <laughs> I just love it. I love, you know, I, lo- I know a lot of filmmakers who are said, as soon as the trucks come, I get depressed. But I like, I just say, bring more trucks. I love the enterprise. I, lo- I love the largesse. I love the speed of the machines. I keep coming back to that word today, but I just love it all. And so that's something confirmed on a larger scale. Also, this was the first piece where I worked with an ensemble cast. And so, for me, what I, I really learned, because it was the first time I had done it, was how to direct the actors to get what we needed when all of them have different processes and all of them are together in a scene and in a film. And I think being a filmmaker is a bit like being a ninja. And for these women, like, say, one in a scene what she really needs to get her work done properly is for you to kind of disappear. She needs to really feel like she's there alone and and block everything out. But she might be in a scene with someone else who really needs you there and and needs you there precisely for every question that she has right away. So you kind of have to simultaneously be invisible and be there. (laughs) You have to find these ways in between these spaces, in between these ways of communicating that are actually quite fascinating to make sure everyone has what they need when each actor has their own process and their their own needs.
0: And filmmakers that are listening to the podcast, where can they see your film? Where is it? Where can they do that?
1: They can do it wherever movies stream right now. So it's on Amazon, it's on iTunes, Apple, it's on demand everywhere. And the soundtrack is also on Spotify and on Apple. Have a listen as well as a look.
0: Karen, it has been great talking to you, finding out a little bit about your career. I'm looking forward to seeing what your next film might bring. And Mm -hmm. thank thank you so much for joining us on the film podcast.
1: It's so fun. I love talking about movies. It was a pleasure speaking with you. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly
0: podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.